This is The Guardian. So crispy can chicken. Jetzt nur bei McDonald's. Der McCrispy Homestyle mit extra crispy chicken. Und neu McCrispy Homestyle Spicy Guacamole. Nur für kurze Zeit. In allen teilnehmenden Restaurants, nicht zu unseren Frühstückszeiten. Hello and welcome to Guardian Football Weekly. Now, this pod cannot complain about managers getting sacked the day before we record, but there was quite a lot to get through before Leicester and then Chelsea made their decisions. We'll begin with Graham Potter. Is it surprising that he lasted so long or that Todd Bowley decided now was the time to move? What next for Chelsea and for Potter? You don't get too many goes at the top table, something that Brendan Rodgers will attest to. Rebuilt his reputation at Celtic and then at Leicester. And now what? Amidst all of that, it's as you were at the top. First off, City came back to demolish Liverpool before Arsenal maintained their eight-point lead with an ultimately comfortable win over Leeds, who are still in trouble along with half the league. Down their huge wins for West Ham and Bournemouth. The big win for Newcastle in the race for the top four. Manchester United in the title race a couple of weeks ago. Now could miss out on Champions League football for another season. There's the invisible saliva of Daniel Podence and the inevitable apologies for not noticing how good Aston Villa are and failing to spend the requisite time on a six-goal thriller at the Amex. All that plus your questions. And that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. Adam says the big beasts of Football Weekly. Dave, can't wait. The golden generation of Football Weekly just never achieved what they should have done. Barney Ronnie, the all-new Barney Ronnie, welcome. It's funny, isn't it? Because Nick Cave also said, whenever I listen to a podcast, there's always something really shit going on. And it's Football Weekly <laughs> with a load of middle-aged blokes who've been on it for years. <laughs> he said that about the Red Hot Chili Peppers, didn't he? It's always there. Yeah. Is Nick Cave not? I think, is Nick Cave not? Do you not think he's a big Football Weekly fan? Is he more football ramble, Nick Cave? Possibly. Isn't he Australian? You should know. Isn't he one of your new media friends in Australia? Yeah. <laughs> He's yeah. one of my friends. You're right. It's me, yeah. him and Luke Carpenter going out on a session as soon as I finish recording. Hello, Jonathan Wilson. Morning. How are you doing? I'm very well. Hello, Barry Glendenning. Hello. I'm, I'm guessing Nick Cave's probably listens to more Brighton-centric podcasts. He lives in Brighton, doesn't he? He's probably a Brighton fan. Absolutely no idea. And <laughs> yeah, I, I was a little bit worried that I hadn't spent enough time researching West Ham v Southampton, but I already was on myself. I have no idea what you're going on about. <laughs> um, Todd says, is the surest sign that the American consortium in charge of Chelsea don't know what they're doing? That they've sacked Potter in time for it to be a lead story on the back pages and podcast, as opposed to a footnote recorded after it finished. I don't think we have that much power. Uh, but look, Graham Potter sacked as Chelsea manager following that 2-0 defeat to Aston Villa, the increasingly impressive Aston Villa. Uh, the statement said, Chelsea FC has announced that Graham Potter's departed the club. Graham has agreed to collaborate with the club to facilitate a smooth transition, whatever that means. In his time with the club, Graham's taken us to the quarterfinal of the Champions League where we will face Real Madrid. Chelsea would like to thank Graham for all his efforts and contribution and wish him well for the future. Uh, Bruno Salta will take charge of the team as interim head coach. They're 11th in the league. They've spent nearly £600 million. His win percentage is, is less than 40%. Wilson, why hasn't it worked? Uh, I mean, it, it may be that... Yeah, the easy answer would be that Potter's not cut for this level. But I mean, and that might be true, but I just don't think you can judge him on this. It's a, it's a ludicrous situation he's found himself in. That He arrives a week after the, the transfer deadline's closed in which they, they brought in, uh, I think, seven players, six of them fairly major names and those six players were presumably thinking well hang on I signed for Champions League winner uh, I was told all their plans for the future I was told about this new era of stability at Chelsea and now he has this bloke who's managed Brighton and Swansea and I don't really know anything about him and that was destabilising enough and then in January he gets another I don't know how many players he signed in January but in, you know uh, eight, eight another eight in January so they've got a squad of 34 now I think it is none of whom seem to fit together uh, there's nothing that Todd Bowley's said in public suggests he understands that constructing a football team isn't just about going out and buying loads of good players that there is you, know, you have to sort of put them together in the right order and find sort of synergy between them and find an internal coherence um, a squad of 34 is unmanageable as, as soon as things go wrong people start pointing apart going oh yeah he's not charismatic he's not screaming on the touchline well no he's not that's not who he is he's never have expected that I'm not sure I would help in this situation but it's an easy stick to beat him with so it's just yeah, 
A year ago, Bowley arrives promising stability since when he's gone on the biggest spending spree in the history of English football and done what the Bramwich never did, which is sack two managers in the same season. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I agree. I mean, I, the one thing I'm disappointed about is we didn't get to see how it plays out because I'm, I'm convinced that with Potter in charge, they had more chance of winning the Champions League, if only because at the start of this job, he said that he'd never even been to a Champions League game. He'd never even been to watch a Champions League game. And then the idea of him taking them all the way to the final was just so, so Graham Potter. I, the one thing I've really enjoyed about him is the way his pronouncements are like some ironical, like a brilliant sitcom character, like a comment on the, oh yeah, it's been a bit hectic, yeah. And well, the, the, the owners, <laughs> they must be clever people. They're billionaires, aren't they? That was my favourite one, um, which I think was serious, but could have been like a brilliant sort of Brent, uh, you know, or, or, uh, Brentism from the early office. I, I just think it, it's, um, yeah, you've created a totally stupid situation. Um, I've kept squinting at this thinking there's some brilliant plan that we can't see and Todd can. It's like a magic eye picture. Like you just don't understand. We are disrupting this where we've got, we, we, you know, we, I thought maybe they know something. Maybe they know there's going to be this all misdirection. There's going to be some hyper league announced next week, and that's all that really matters. Spend all the money you can now. Just it's not important because nobody could be this stupid or this destructive or walk into an industry they know nothing about and attempt to reinvent it instantly. But it seems that somebody can, and that somebody is one of Chelsea's co-controlling partners. It's very strange, and uh, I agree that Graham Potter's reputation, not exactly enhanced, is it? But uh, I think he has enough credit um, to go somewhere where they want a Graham Potter and where he can, hopefully his confidence hasn't been damaged too much, that he will just plant himself in some proper soil. and just for, It's like one of those dreams you have when you've got food poisoning, like this just didn't happen, it's, it's not real. Um, I had a dream about Bruce Forsyth the other day that seemed so real, um, but it wasn't real, and you know, Graham, just think of it like that. Were you getting up to, you know, into scrapes with no, Lucy? We'd, no. Do you want to know what it was? Uh, I sure. Had, There's not a lot to talk about today, so. I'd done an analysis of Bruce Forsyth where I determined that the reason he was so successful on television was that he started all his sentences on a very down and then went up. So it's like, good evening, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the show! Rather than, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the show. So he always did the former. And I was doing a sort of talk at a conference where I was saying, this is the secret of Bruce Forsyth's success. And this is valuable information that I can sell to you. Uh, probably I could have got a job at Chelsea with that kind of thing. It sounds like the kind of thing Todd Bowley would come out with. But that sort of, that's what I'd compare it to. Barry, uh, Miguel Delaney tweeted um, sort of behind the scenes stuff. Some Chelsea players had to look up who Graham Potter was seems extraordinary there were inevitable jokes about his wizard namesake with references to quidditch he's called graham potter he's not called harry potter so it's anything seems ridiculous um it summed up how the squad never really took him seriously we did hear when he got the job right he'd never coached elite players right players who had won stuff and i guess that is different you know to to as soon as results don't go anywhere or you do something in training that, that they think isn't great if they're already making quidditch jokes seems i can't imagine Matteo Kovacic and well, the, the, the the story the story I heard about that was it was particularly the, the French speaking players uh, that they all called him Hogwarts, but also <laughs> and yeah, you have to give me I, I've never I've never read any Harry Potter, I've never seen any Harry Potter, but apparently Mudrick looks like Malfoy. Yeah, does a little bit. So the, they they yeah. all call him Malfoy, and the joke was that Potter didn't pick him because of the natural enmity between <laughs> Potter and Malfoy. Right, I see. <laughs> They've really thought this through, the French contingent. From uh... Anyway, Barry, you, your thoughts on this? It's not a surprise he's been sacked. I think you could legitimately argue he could have gone a lot sooner and he could have been given more time. Um, it does appear to be a bit of a shit show at Chelsea and he's not by no means the only person to blame. I mean, Barney has already outlined Todd Bowley's apparent many shortcomings. I don't know much about baseball, but I, I believe the LA Dodgers, which he and someone else at Chelsea sort of co-own, they seem to be quite well-run baseball team, and there's quite a lot of stability there. It's kind of weird because 
at Man U, you have the Glazers who own the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and they seem quite well run, and they seem to take that far more seriously. You can imagine this merry-go-round, which I'm already confusing myself. Potter will end up at Leicester, where he would probably do well. Rodgers could go to Spurs. Chelsea should, could come in for Roberto de Zerbi, which would suggest instead of buying Chelsea, uh, Todd Bowley should have just bought Brighton. It would have ended up being an awful lot cheaper. <laughs> and it's what he's doing anyway. But I, I don't think Potter's uh, reputation will be irreparably harmed by this dismissal. I he does strike me as the guy, kind of guy who will very much take it to heart and be deeply wounded by this, this outcome because I think a lot of people expected him to fail and he kind of has, hasn't he? Yeah, I, I think, but I think it's interesting that, you know, you say his reputation won't be affected, but, but his reputation at the absolute top level, Wilson, you can't imagine another big side, like Champions League type side, going for him until he's rebuilt somewhere else because... If he failed again, you'd be like, well, what on earth have you done? Like, it's not necessarily because of him, just because of how it's happened at Chelsea. I think for Potter, this is a massive blow. Uh, yeah, I mean, cushioned by whatever payoff he's got, which I, I, I mean, he was on 12 million a year, wasn't he? So, mm. Could, it, it, he's agree- I think it's not the whole thing, but that would have been 50 million. It's insane, isn't it? Yeah, but I mean, you know, he, 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 even without the payoff, you know, he's been there six months. So he's got six million quid he didn't have before. I mean, you know, less tax and whatever, but. In a sense, he's slightly unfortunate that the Leicester jobs come up now because you'd sort of think he'd be perfect for Leicester. Yeah, slightly more money to spend than Brighton. Probably a slightly higher ultimate ceiling. I hope he doesn't take it now because I just don't think these rebound jobs ever really work. I think once you've been sacked, you need to go away. You need to have a break and you you, know, you need to come back refreshed. I think you saw with Dean Smith going to Norwich. I get you want to get back on Barry's merry-go-round, but, but maybe... Maybe it's wise to take a little walk around the fairground and have a toffee apple first. Is Barry standing on one of the horses, just holding it, you know, looking cool? You know, just, just yeah, that's <laughs> a fat, a fat yeah. yeah, exactly. Spinning around your wall, sir, because <laughs> there's a pretty girl sitting in it. Like Chelsea are looking at possibly, you know, Deserby, maybe Nagelsmann, Pochettino, Lewis, Enrique, Hansi, Flick. Who, who should they? get because we talked about how this squad is sort of bloated and pretty hard to manage what whoever they get there's no ideal candidate because nobody's ever had to manage this situation before it's there's no it's not just for potter it wasn't just uh, this new level it's this new level that's never looked like that before i mean no one is prepared for that my fear with chelsea is that this is not a benevolent billionaire it's not a sort of political project these people are kind of high energy disruptive mega capitalists who go in and try and shake things up what are we what are we working on now we're working on this we're going to try and shake this industry and make you know find value in it and it won't go on forever um chelsea not going to be in the champions league now they're going to face possibly financial fair play penalties all of the players they've bought have gone down in value maybe not all of them. there's a couple have done well but no one else is paying chelsea prices so it's not going to go on forever. It's quite possible these guys all think, you know, let's go and muck around with hydrogen batteries instead. But you don't have endless money. But how much money can you realistically make at Chelsea now, having thrown all that? And part of being a good capitalist is knowing when to cut your losses. And I don't know where that would leave the club if they were to decide we can't act like this anymore or you're going to have to find a new way to make money or we're off um, because so much capital has been spent and debts accrued and all that kind of stuff. So... I'm a bit worried for them. I don't think this is a period of stability at all. I think it's a period of high jeopardy. Before we talk about Brendan Rodgers, uh, a few people got in touch. RM Cole saying, has anyone noticed that Aston Villa are really good now? Mike says, might get lost in the pot of Fiori, but Villa are suddenly two points off sixth place. What price Unai for another Europa League? I, I mean, that run, the run that they've been on since he took over has been extraordinary, Barry. Yeah, I think we got grief a couple of weeks ago for not giving them enough credit. And... Uh, they have been playing well. Having said that, and it was an excellent win um, against Chelsea at Stamford Bridge, when you, if you look at the stats of that game, you're wondering how did Chelsea not win it, or at least not score, but then we know scoring has been a problem for them. They did have quite a lot of chances, but Villa are hugely impressive. That John McGinn goal was an absolute beauty, and he spanked one off the bar as well, didn't he? But Unai Emery was pilloried when he was at Arsenal. It didn't go particularly well for him and he wasn't 
a great communicator at press conferences and that led to him, a lot of people thinking he was a bit of a busted flush and wondering what all the fuss was about. But he has really knitted that side together and the just players... <sighs> Well, they're just really good, you know. The, the, the movement, <laughs> their intensity—they all have each other's backs, and uh, in a way, they didn't before his arrival. And it, it it hasn't taken him long to do that or to knit it all together. There, Graham Potter, then the thirteenth Premier League manager to leave his job this season. Twelfth was Brendan Rodgers a few hours earlier, following that last-minute winner. Uh, for Roy Hodgson's Crystal Palace. These sentences out loud sound so ridiculous. What is Roy Hodgson doing there? But anyway, Leicester are now second bottom. Yes, Wilson. And it's the uh, it's the first time team managers have been sacked on the same Premier League managers have been sacked on the same day since I think October the fourth, two thousand fifteen, when it was Brendan Rodgers and Dick ah. Advocat. So if Brendan Rodgers gets sacked and you're Premier League manager, just turn your phone <laughs> off because it's not going to be good news. What do you make, Wilson, of that? sacking or a mutual consent I mean they lost five in six um, the chairman said uh, performances and results this season have been below our shared expectations um, It's be, it had been our belief that continuity and stability would be key to correcting our course particularly given our previous achievements under Brendan's management I mean I, I think it's you know, relegation is looming they need to do something this is something and, and often that works that if, you know, if you're stuck in a rut you need some kind of uh, shock to, to, to jolt you out of that and the easiest shock you can apply is to get rid of the manager so yeah, things haven't been good there all season I think they probably hoped that, that the World Cup and that break would allow them to reset but their form since the World Cup has been dreadful and they, they look they look doomed you know, there's been very little since the World Cup to suggest they might get out of it so I guess with, with sort of roughly a quarter of a season to go just under a quarter of a season to go now, now probably is the time to, to act just to try and Try try and keep him in the in the division. Get Carter says in the absence of the general media criticizing Brennan's time at Leicester, any chance of the pod doing some analysis on a coach on ten million a year who fell miserably with a talented squad this season and who hasn't been able to get several different players to defend in over two years? Where, where how do you rate what Brendan Rodgers has done at Leicester, Barney? Oh, I think he's done pretty well. They had a good team, finished fifth twice and won the FA Cup. But this season, I mean, the problem seemed to stem from the summer where they he wanted, obviously would have wanted to sign certain players and they, they didn't because they couldn't. And it always, this happened at Spurs as well. I remember they had a winter uh, window where they signed nobody and everybody seems to forget. I mean, you do need to refresh your squad. You need the players to be motivated by new people arriving. And, and then a year later, you're arguing about whether the manager's done a good job or not. I mean, so much of football comes down to finance and recruitment. And I don't think that was ideal. I think I do think Rogers kind of runs out of energy at some point. Um, you kind of see it happen. He becomes sort of drained. And I think some part of him loses interest. He, he, um, he clearly had to go. Um, that that, t- that squad and team is too good to be relegated. James Madison is a brilliant player. And you shouldn't be anywhere near going down with him pretty much guaranteeing you goal scoring chances constantly and they have other you know really seriously good footballers in that squad so I agree he definitely had to go but I wouldn't say he did badly or he was a failure um he's in an interesting position now his career could sort of go either way I still think he's a really good manager and his teams play really nice football and he knows how to manage top players um and it sort of he could step either way now I think I think that that criticism of him from the listener is pretty harsh. I mean, it hasn't been good for the last 14, 18 months, but he won the cup with them. He almost got them into the top four twice. That's pretty good for, you know. The one big criticism I would have of him, and I, I, I think Barney is, is fundamentally right, it is about the the, the, the transfer issues of, 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 of the summer, which I think possibly contributed to, to, to Rogers' sense that, that this was a project running out of steam. But they, the, the inability to defend set plays for two years it really baffles me. Yeah, I, I know I said this a lot with Lampard. A sign of a manager just not doing the basics of his job is if you keep on conceding goals from set plays. Now, there might be reasons for that. It might be you have a team full of players who are five foot six, in which case it's not, not like you can do. Harry Souter is definitely not five foot six. Yeah, I know there's that fast. You know, they, they, they... Well, you could, you could also get a player who's five foot seven. There is something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
but it, yeah, that, that inability to defend set plays is just what, what what are they doing? Like, how can you not put that right if you're a Premier League manager? You should be able to work out a way of you know, of, of of rectifying that situation. And the fact that for two years he's not been able to do so, that I think the blame does come down to him. Graham Potter, favourite for the Leicester job. Uh, Rafa Benitez, second favourite. Uh, Thomas Frank. Uh, the third favourite. I mean, yeah. and it'd be interesting for Rodgers. I mean, he, he could feasibly do a good job at Spurs, Barney, but I just, I'd almost be certain that most Tottenham fans would not be excited by that appointment. <laughs> no, probably not. But I mean, what, what are Spurs fans excited by? I mean, what what, what would be the... <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's it's going really... It's like you're the, the other thing. We have to have the other thing. We've appointed this furiously angry proven winner um a man so angry his gallbladder literally exploded while managing spurs let's manage unproven non-winner who's nice and probably had his gallbladder removed at birth uh, doesn't even need to deal with gall at all and just sort of is nice i yeah it would be terrible it would all go wrong i don't know where i feel where we need to protect graham but i don't know where he could go he should probably I don't know. He's working in a nicer industry, just sort of selling spoons or something. <laughs> I don't know. Whittling. His, there is a shop on the Hackney Road where a man just whittles spoons. Graham could go and work with him. Massive result for Roy Hodgson anyway, so uh, good for him. And that we haven't mentioned any actual football. I know you did mention the John McGinn goal. That touch from Mateta is actually sensational because the way Ayu fizzes that ball at him, it's quite hard to control it and lay it into your path and finish it off. So look, well done to Crystal Palace. Um, and that'll do for part one. Part two, we'll go to the top of the Premier League. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. And a while ago, we appealed for you to send us pictures of Football Weekly panellists in the wild, uh, ideally not just after a live show hugging them, but just maybe you know one of them or went to school with one of them or or bumped into one up a mountain. I don't know. But anyway, please do this. It'll make Jonathan Wilson very happy. Uh, footballweekly at theguardian.com. Um, was that a good enough plug, Wilson, do you think? Yeah, no, that was, that was great. Thank you. Okay. Uh, I appreciate that. Right, but, but please, please, if there's, there's literally thousands of you. You can do better than you've done so far. Although I do thank the people who have already sent some in. But, you know, we, we need these. I need these just to fulfil a contract. I, I was on a plane the other day going to um, wherever England played, um, Italy, Naples. Um, and um, there was a guy on the plane who was you know, a football fan. We were getting off the plane. I was a bit dazed. And he came up to me and went, uh, could we just take a picture? And then all, immediately, without stopping in his sentence, he went, oh, no, no, that's ridiculous. That's sorry. That's, uh, and walked off. <laughs> I just felt instant embarrassment. What am I doing? A, and I kind of thought that's a really good Football Weekly kind of moment. That's how I expect Football Weekly listeners to be. And then I, I end up standing next to him in the queue and he turned out to be a very, very nice person. So we had the equivalent of a picture, which was a nice long chat uh, with nobody oh, needing to. wonderful. Yeah, yeah. But, well, he can't help us then. So, no. you know, he's no use no. to us in <laughs> the actual photos. Um, uh, it's as you were at the top of the Premier League. Arsenal, eight points clear. City have a game in hand and they have to play each other. That's on April the 26th. Uh, the early kickoff was Man City beating Liverpool 4-1. Barney, you were at this game. I mean, this feels like a lifetime ago to me. What were your big conclusions from this one? Well, City were really good. Um, they picked a, the Pep picked a really powerful team. You know, the back five, John Stones at the kind of roving right back. You know, Rodri is a, a unit among units. And they that seems to be working for them at the moment. Ake's been really good at left back. And, uh, you know, in front of that, Alvarez was brilliant. De Bruyne was brilliant. And Grealish was brilliant. And, I mean, I what I noticed happening, it's sort of painful to watch now. I'm really bored of Liverpool having the same flaw, of wor- worrying about Trent Alexander-Arnold's defending. But I've learned to sort of read what Pep does, um, I've learned to read his body language. You know, he's constantly moving. I think I could get a job if any Premier League, you know, hierarchies are listening, sitting in the crowd with a kind of microphone saying, okay, I know what they're going to do. The, he's got all these movements. There's the sort of cocaine-crazed accordion player, which means we need to condense the space between midfield and attack. Uh, there's uh, there's one where it's like throwing a grenade into a trench, which means you need to go further out and stay on your touchline over there 
And there's the one he was doing here, which is like fly fishing. He's fly fishing, he's lunging, which means we need to play quick diagonal passes in behind the fullbacks. And he was doing this constantly and yelling at Kevin De Bruyne, who was like nodding uh, before they scored their equaliser. And the second goal came from this. And I'm thinking, what? why are you not watching what he's doing? He's literally telling you what's going to happen. You don't need a cheat sheet, you don't need to spy with binoculars and annoy Frank Lampard. He's saying, this is what we're going to do. And I'm watching it. And they did it. And it was so predictable, but it was brilliantly executed. And what the moment I enjoyed most in the whole game was Julian Alvarez's pass out to the right for the second goal, which was instant and just brilliantly done. He's a really good player. I think he's the third best centre forward in the Premier League, um, which is quite a thing, given he's such a fill-in. City could win the treble. They've got 17 goals left, 17 games left. They could win all of them. Simon says, is Alvarez the best backup since Max Rushton in the glory years of Football Weekly? That's a very good question. <laughs> um, and Ian says, City's win without Haaland. To what extent does it strengthen the argument that they are better without him versus how many would they have got with him in the team? Um, I, I didn't think the camera panned to Erling Haaland enough during this football match. Was sort of, I reckon it was like 60% him, 40% the actual game. Um, but Wilson Barney mentioned Jack Grealish there and he... I mean, I don't know if that was his best game for City, but he's on this wonderful run of form now, isn't it? And now you sort of feel a bit silly questioning how much they spent two years ago or whatever it was. Well, not really. I mean, I think a lot of people made the point uh, that uh, wide forwards often take time to set them to Guardiola's side. Um, you know, we saw it happen uh, with uh, David Villa, even back at Barcelona. We saw it happen with Mahrez. Some of them fall by the wayside. Some of them do adapt and... and, and you know, find the, these purple patches of their career. So I, I think to be critical of Grealish last season was was reasonable, as long as you had that caveat of, well, this, this does happen. I thought that interview that Grealish gave on the pitch on the final day of last season after they'd won the title was, was one of the more, more interesting interviews I've ever heard a player give, despite Michael Richards talking over top of him, where he was sort of talking about how difficult it was for him to have to sort of you know, restrict his, his, his instincts but then to try and make the the application of Guardiola's instructions instinctive, uh, which for yeah, you know, I, I thought Grealish actually explained it incredibly well of what it's like to be a footballer like that and come into a totally different system, have to learn a system and how you're second guessing yourself. But you've got to stop second guessing. You've got to make the right move your your first guess. And now he is doing that. And and yeah, I, I think certainly since the World Cup, I think he. He's possibly been City's best player, um, but then a load of players are in really good form for City. De Bruyne had that dip, but, but he's, I think the last sort of month or so, he's played pretty well. John Stones is playing brilliantly. So yeah, I mean, this was, it was partly Liverpool being terrible and it's partly City being really good again. And I know, I've now gone back to thinking they're going to win the league because basically Arsenal have got to win every game they play apart from one against City, uh, even though they're five points clear. Yeah, they 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 can't afford to slip up, and I can't see how they they get anything out of City. So therefore, they've got to win all the eight other games, and one of those is away at Newcastle, uh, and that and one of them's going to be at home to Chelsea. And I think they're very hard hard things to do. One of them's away at Liverpool. I wonder if the biggest story from this game is Liverpool, Barry. I mean, it's a it's a, a repetitive story. It's one we've had before, but down to eight. There was that little time when we thought, oh, maybe look, they'll race into the top four because that will be the Liverpool that of old. But they were miles off it. I know City are good, but they were just sort of they played into their hands, like Barney was saying. I, I don't really know what to make of Liverpool at all. They have these glaring weaknesses that either aren't being addressed or can't be addressed because they don't have the players to address th these issues. You know, they were completely overrun in midfield. The balls going in behind the full backs, as Barney alluded to, uh, is a constant problem for them, which. Jurgen Klopp doesn't seem to be able to fix. You know, they also beat Manchester United 7-0, and they're really good at home. On the evidence of this game, Arsenal should batter them, but it's at Anfield, and Liverpool are a completely different proposition there, but they're away from home. They're just really bad, and they look slow and out of energy, and this uh, he heavy metal you know, mentality monster attitude just isn't there anymore. Can I ask you a question, Wilson, about, um, sorry, back to City, about John Stones going into midfield? And because I've been so conditioned by whoever's playing right back to be right back and sit at right back. And if they go wandering, then there's a big hole. Why is there not a big hole when he wanders in midfield? Or is it 
just doesn't count because City just have the ball. I mean, it's partly City control the game through possession, but it's partly the, the times when he goes to the midfield. So the reason he does it is that Guardiola has, uh, I, I think, uh, I mean, I don't think I've ever seen him speak specifically about this, but he appears to have this belief that you need five outfield players behind the ball at all times, and the most effective disposition of those players is uh, you know, a, a three in a defensive line, then two you know, deep-lying midfielders, although not necessarily midfielders, sitting just in front of them. And I, I think, actually, generally, football history suggests that is that, that sort of trapezoid shape is very solid. So if you think back to the, the WM, that's how the back of that would have been, three defenders and two deep-lying midfielders. Uh, if you look at, say, um, Conte's team at Chelsea, it was a back three with two deep-lying players. I think where that came unstuck was a few teams around that period were, were playing that sort of 3-4-3 or 3-4-2-1 you know, type shape. And I think the the reason why that had a very brief um, moment in the sun before being discarded is it makes you quite predictable from an attacking sense, which I think actually Chelsea is still suffering from. Their team is, the squad, I mean, you know, who knows what's going on with the squad in the last year, but certainly until the last year, the squad was sort of set up in that way, but that left them incredibly dependent on the wing-backs to, to give them attacking width. So, so then you need to change the, the attacking shape, and if you do that, well, you do have to make adjustments further back. But fundamentally, you have the ball, you're worried about the opposition getting the ball and, and counter-attacking quickly. The best way to stop that is that 3-2 that shape. Now, if they're switching the ball out to, to where John Stones naturally would be, they're switching it out to the left wing, and that's kind of where you want them because once they're out to the flanks, you can bring players back and you can stop the path into the centre. So I think I think it works because it's being used to, to counter the counter rather than in, in other circumstances. And I think Stones, I mean, he's only really done it with three games, hasn't he? There's uh, the Leipzig game, the Palace game and, and and the Liverpool game. And there may be others, but they're, they're the three that sort of stick in my mind. I, you know, he's he's done it brilliantly that he he and it's, it's not clearly you know, it's, it's not a question of purely of technique, it's a question of tactical understanding, understanding of space, and understanding when he should go there and when he should go back to a more more orthodox position. Uh, a lot of people were exercised about Pep Guardiola celebrating in the face of Simicas. I, I, I don't think we need to spend hours on that. Let's let's talk about the Arsenal victory. Um, Arsenal four leads one perfect response to City's win. Took a while to get going, Barry, but once it did, it was pretty straightforward. Yeah, Leeds gave them plenty to think about for the first half an hour. I think created more chances. Uh, Crescencia Somerville was causing them all sorts of problems. Then Luke Ayling gives away a really dumb penalty, which uh, Gabriel Jesus scored. And uh, that was it. Game over, pretty much. Arsenal just won it at a canter after that. Um I've heard people saying it, Jonathan saying there that he thinks Man City will win the league. I, I, I still think Arsenal will do it. I just don't think they're getting the credit they deserve for just how good they are. And uh, But, you know, who knows? They, there's always the potential for them to Arsenal it up. Uh, but that's seven wins in a row now. Um, Arteta's 100th win as their manager. And... Yeah, they're they're set fair, I think, for to win the title. Arsenal easily not win the league and get over ninety points. If if they win seven of the last nine, I'll talk them to ninety three. That's ninety three points is an incredible tally, but City can still get more. So if these are never it's never kind of one side great, one side terrible. It's not about failure. Uh you know, Arsenal got themselves in a great position. They could have a, a really good final quarter of a season. And still not win the league. It's it's still hard to beat this city. This city are, are phenomenal. I would question if you understand football at all. If you don't think it's one side great, <laughs> one side terrible. What, what do you think this is? <laughs> you know, r- ridiculous suggestion. Uh, but they are. They are. You're right. They are. They're scoring enough goals uh, at this stage, which is not a sign of a team tying up. And lots of different goal scorers. And they seem to have a lot of people now. Like Trossard was a really good signing. He's got loads Brilliant of Brilliant signing. That's such a good signing, yeah. Yeah, and Jesus has come back and he um like he's really important to them. You know, he clearly is a good team guy and he, he's got a lovely sort of cheeky face. Not that that's not important, but it is in a kind of there's a lot of um pressure on them and he's someone who's been there 
in those kind of teams before. And they, they seem to have a lot of people and a lot of options. And they, I feel, I used to think that City would definitely pull them back. If they, if they get a draw at the Etihad, that's probably it, isn't it? Yeah, that, that game is key. Having seen the game at, at the Emirates when, certainly in the second half, City were comfortably better. Um, Arsenal need a big improvement on that game just to avoid defeat at the Etihad. If they avoid defeat there, it's a totally different equation. But I, I'm sort of already writing that game off. Then can they win eight or nine when one of them is at Newcastle, when one of them is at Anfield? I think that's really tough for them. I think City's fixtures look easier. John says, should we all follow Ben White's example and not watch football? Yes, afterwards he was asked, Barry, if he'd watched the City-Liverpool game. He said, no, I just don't watch football, which is very refreshing. And I guess he does spend a lot of time playing football all day and then matches and then warm downs. So it's quite nice that he doesn't want to watch it. I just wonder if, do you need to watch football if you're a footballer? Surely you need to watch some of it, don't you? Probably not. I mean, most footballers like football. There are well-documented cases of footballers who don't and just do it because they're good at it and it's a very well-paid job and quite probably a nice lifestyle. But he has said this before. It's not news, really, that he, he's not much of a football fan. And, uh, yeah, yeah. If he, he's clearly quite good at it. So, obviously, he doesn't need to watch it. Well, presumably, he's getting given video clips by the coaching staff at Arsenal you know, to, to say, you know, look at this, focus on this. And so, as long as he's doing that... She refuses to watch. She refuses to watch those. <laughs> he puts one of those. He puts glasses with his with like eyeballs on the top. Of <laughs> um, Leeds uh, just a point above the relegation zone in sixteenth. Actually, started this game pretty well uh, before Ailing decided to uh, kick Jesus in the knee. Uh, we'll talk about the relegation battle in just a second. Before that, we'll go to Newcastle, Manchester United. Um, uh, you wrote about this Wilson from Manchester United perspective. I mean, Newcastle were dominant from start to finish weren't they in this oh yeah much much better and the, the contrast of the League Cup final was incredible which I, I think partly shows what difference Casemiro makes but I think partly Newcastle have come out of that little slump and they're, they're, they're playing really well now so I thought yeah, it was a it was a really poor United performance and then, you know, their away form against uh, top half sides is, is not good this season Isaac looks impressive Barney to me he's a really good player it was a good signing it just goes to show when you can afford really good players, you you improve as a team. Um, but I, I mean, I'm a big I'm a big Ten Hag guy. I mean, I often think that's sort of based in I just kind of like him, his intensity and his sort of puritanical nature. But you have to say, compare. I mean, Eddie, Eddie House had six months longer in the job, hasn't he? Is it six months? Um, he has done a really good job with Newcastle. They do look really coherent as a team. There's things they do that surprise. I didn't realise that Eddie Howe's teams, I always thought of Bournemouth as a kind of nice, light, sort of fun team who might, uh, you could sort of brush aside slightly, but would win quite often. But Newcastle are, are really physically powerful. They're kind of, they've got a little bit of shithousery about them. They're kind of notorious in the Premier League for not being nice to play against, for being awkward and irritating. And uh, I, I think that they are, they are going to end up in the Champions League. And it is, even though they've obviously had a big budget and you suddenly lose all your fear, your anxieties about signing players uh, when you're taken over by a country, um, he's done a brilliant job. And it did kind of show up the limitations of what's happened to Man United so far, a, a revolution that's based around having Casemiro and, and Christian Eriksen in your team, which is kind of good, but is it really uh, the future? Mm, I think you're right. When you look at Longstaff, Willock and Murphy all starting in that game, I just think, this before this season, Barry, I'd never look at them and think. I just go, well, they're pretty average Premier League players. There's nothing special. Yeah, and to a certain extent, I think that might still be the case. Uh, <laughs> Maybe, but they play very well, though. They did play very well. I, I th I've been hugely impressed with Sean Longstaff actually, because I thought he'd be bummed out, you know, in uh, no time at all. And I'm surprised he's starting in that team. I mean, I, I think. Ten Hag, I'm an admirer of his, but I think he got his selection wrong in that game, although his hand was forced, obviously, by injury and suspension. The tactics weren't great, and the players just didn't seem that bothered. And, you know, Newcastle wanted it more, and the St. James's Park has gone from being this just pit of despair and apathy to arguably the most hostile 
environment in the Premier League, and it's it's not going to be easy for any team to win there. You'd imagine, and not not many teams have won there. If I'm if I'm mistaken, I think Liverpool are the only team that have won there this season. And the absurd thing now is there's this this perpetual mystery of how a top was fourth. If they beat Everton, the third. <laughs> <laughs> can't be real it can't be real it's called isn't the phrase um failing upwards <laughs> yeah. isn't that what you do you fail you have to remember everything that man united is basically the owners for everything that happens comes down to stupid uh middle management and stupid ownership i mean the reason why, why is Valt Veghorst playing at number 10 the reason they could only afford Valt Veghorst is because they signed Cristiano Ronaldo which is the stupidest thing you could have done um and sorry, you know, his fans, but that's been kind of proven now. So, I don't know, you are doing the job with uh, one leg tied behind the other knee and a hand tied behind your back and trying to keep a kind of straight face while you're doing it. I mean, they could drop out. That's interesting. You say Tottenham could go third if they beat Everton. Almost certainly won't. But, like, Manchester United could drop out from going from being in the title race three weeks ago, Baz, to dropping out altogether, which is eminently possible. Um would would be bad <laughs> yeah. and i mean all, all these things that are happening you know liverpool getting absolutely monstered by city manchester united playing fairly dismally against newcastle newcastle uh being third possibly finishing runners or well they won't finish runners up in the title race but probably getting the champions league it's making you know a lot of it shows up us up as complete morons because you know our opinions change so often during the season we get everything wrong but um yeah there's a very good chance manchester united won't finish fourth will that mean eric ten hag hasn't been good there i don't think so i think he is doing a good job there but yesterday he he didn't he had a bad day at the office as did many of his players yeah i suppose one of the difficult things is you know you have to keep talking about the season while it's going and as well, yes, i said there's yeah. a quarter of it left i mean that's quite a lot of a season <laughs> isn't it those games are the they're worth the same aren't they i mean it should be said tottenham will have played two games more than both Newcastle and manchester united so that being third is a slightly false stat but i, I think you saw again yeah, this, the Ten Hag revolution isn't just based around Casemiro, but his his revolution is is has been uh, stymied by the fact, uh, you know, one of his best three or four players is still David De Gea, who is not a goalkeeper who fits the way he wants to play. So, I, I sort of sensed towards the end of the first half, beginning of the second half, maybe Manchester United are, are coming back into this. Maybe they weathered the storm. And then how does how does the opening Newcastle goal come? It's a really nice move, the Isaac pass and you know, the chip to the back post headed back across. But how does the ball get to Isaac in the first place? It's a throw in, and the throw in's given away because of a poor De Gea ball out from a goal kick. So if De Gea I mean yeah, you, you can always trace it back to whatever. De Gea's parents had never met, <laughs> is what you're saying. Well it, it, yeah, it's the same as the at, at Brentford when they lost four nil. De Gea not being able to pass out from back creates issues, which then other issues are compounded upon that. Look, there's, there's a n- number of ways in which Newcastle did very good things after that, in which United possibly could have tried to stop them a bit more after that. But still, that begins with a Manchester United goal kick and they give the ball away. A, a, a goalkeeper's better with his feet. Now, De Gea made you know, a brilliant double save first half, that parry from the Johnson header in the second half. De Gea had a really good game, but his inability to play out from back means that Ten Hag is compromising his revolution at the outset. And, and that, that is a problem that needs resolving. Last week, I was on holidays in Spain and I was in a sort of holiday home compound where I'm told David Hayes' parents live and uh, or at least have, have an apartment if they don't live there all year round. And I did notice a conspicuous number of no ball games signs up in Spanish, <sighs> which would explain why David Hay isn't as good with the ball as his feet as he should be. Well, it doesn't explain why he's quite good at catching it, does it? I mean, that's still a ball game, isn't it? Like, still... Well, maybe he's always stopping the ball games. Like, stop, stop, <laughs> stop playing that football. And he was brilliant at getting his mates out of trouble. Don't you think it's funny that until quite recently, you were basically, you were either a good goalkeeper or a bad goalkeeper. There were two kinds of goalkeepers, good ones and bad. Being a goalkeeper was just this one thing of catching the ball, getting in the way, looking cross. And that was it, dominating your area. 
And the idea that there was a tactical element to being a goalkeeper is so recent. Like, it's like getting rid of Joe Hart at City. It was like, it's just, how can he do that? How has that happened? Why has that happened? It's Joe Hart. He's good at being a goalkeeper. But um, we didn't seem to realise there was more that I certainly didn't really take that on board. It's like the idea that you could only play 4-4-2 when Ericsson was England manager. But it never occurred to anyone that the answer oh, to the situation was, was a simpler slightly changed. Well, yeah. Obviously, we have to play 4-4-2. Like, so how do we deal with it? It was never, it never occurred to anyone there was another formation. It's weird. Uh, worth pointing out, Thurs on Thursday, the Premier League approved tougher men measures for its owners and directors test that would bar anyone found to have committed human rights abuses from owning a club based on the global human rights sanctions regulations. I mean, it feels a little late. Uh, doesn't it? Um, a group of Newcastle and Manchester United fans uh, joined forces on Sunday to call for a ban on the sale of clubs to states who could use their ownership for sports watching human rights abuses. Newcastle United fans against sports watching and United against sports watching uh, issued a joint statement uh, in the build up to that game. Uh, and that'll do for part two. I know, just to add to that, Max, uh, Newcastle United's owners, the uh, the fund, which Tracy Crashaw is very definitely a fund have told the world in an American court that they're in fact an arm of the Saudi government, so they can't do proper discovery because they're part of the sovereign state. So that is an impossible circle to square. We are being told in legal, we, we heard about legal undertakings, didn't we? Legally binding undertakings that they're not owned by the state in this country, but in America, it is the state. So the, the someone has to somehow make that make sense. All right, that'll do for part two. Part three, we'll do uh, the relegation scrap and Brighton-Brentford. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Chris says, with Ethan Pinnock scoring and Robin Cowan talking about the bright lights of London on her commentary on Match of the Day, was Brighton-Brentford the most Football Weekly game ever? It's a brilliant game, this, Wilson. I mean, the XG was wild. Brighton got 4.85. I don't think I've ever seen that on XG. I think every one of their 10 outfield starters, Chapa said on Match of the Day, uh, had two efforts on goal, and yet they didn't win. Because... <laughs> I mean, it's back to pottery with Brighton not being able to take their chances. But but yeah, they they were. I mean, as far as you can tell from the highlights, they they looked exceptional. And uh, yeah, Brentford do what they do, which is they they're quite direct and they're quite they, you know they they have a lot of cutting edge doing that. So it, it was a great game. Um, I, I guess Brighton is still just about in the race for top four. Yeah, you know, we probably shouldn't get too fixated on that because they probably won't get it. And it's been a brilliant season for them anyway. And I, I, you know, I would look forward to seeing them in the Europa League next season. And their fans should should really enjoy that because, you know, I think if your club that hasn't been in Europe, to have the chance to go and watch watch your team play in Europe, it must be a great thing. It's interesting that a lot was talked about how Brighton played great football and Brentford knock it long, and Matoma's goal, Barry, was Jason Steele hammering it upfield. I mean, I, I guess if you're not expecting it because they don't do it very much and then, you know, all the players are coming short. Actually, tactically, it's super smart. But it did just look like keepers just not just gone full League Two. Yeah. Um, I, I'm pleased to see Jason Steele doing well because he sort of had a very public kind of meltdown slash mental disintegration in, in one of the series of Sunderland Till I Die. And I kind of felt a bit bad for him because he was just having a really bad time at Sunderland. Uh, and he's been playing second fiddle at Brighton, but great pass, lovely finish, one of several excellent goals in the game. Two brilliantly run clubs, owned by two men who really don't like each other, I believe. Uh, used to be business partners and then fell out. And uh, the draw, probably not great for either of them. Uh, Brighton should have won, but Brentford are a really, really good side. And that directness serves them well. You know, Ethan Pinnock scored another worldy, uh, stealing in at the far post to, to prod home a free kick. And he also had a goal line clearance, which uh, if he doesn't win the Ballon d'Or, I, I would be very <laughs> surprised. Yeah, Joe says, please let Barry know that when Ethan Pinnock scored against my beloved Brighton yesterday, although I was fuming at our shocking defending, I was thinking of Barry as Pinnock celebrated... <laughs> What a performance from him. <laughs> if you keep saying something enough. <laughs> do you think Ethan Pinnock is a good player, Barry? I mean, do, do you, do you, I mean, well, yes. Has, has, have you watched him more because of that goal? And like, like, do you now study his work? I do focus on him now. He, of course, he's a good player. He's, you know, a, a regular starter in a very good team, Premier League team. 
but I, I would hate people to think I'm ridiculing him in any way, uh, but just the mockery I was subjected to for my genuine <laughs> assertion that that was a goal of the season contender is tapping for three because it was just a brilliantly orchestrated uh, free kick routine that he happened to finish off, I think because Pontus Janssen, who was supposed to finish it off, happened to miss the ball. But that that's Brentford for you, you know. They're just really. Thomas Frank is a very clever manager, and and he's assembled a very good team. So the bottom of the table, um, Palace are twelfth still. Obviously, they have thirty points, which is almost breathing space, is it? No, it's not really. They're only four points clear of the relegation zone. Wolves on twenty eight, West Ham, Forest, Bournemouth on twenty seven, Leeds and Everton on twenty six, Leicester on twenty five, Southampton on twenty three. Um, They've played between 27 and 29 games. Look at a league table while we're having this discussion. I mean, massive victories, Barney, for Bournemouth and West Ham. And the Tavernier goal for Bournemouth was just something joyous, wasn't it? Yeah, it was It was brilliant and helped by having a camera angle right behind the flight of the ball. So you could 100%. see it go outside the post and also dip. And also the goalkeeper, who must have known as he saw it going, but he knew he wasn't going to get there, but he did it the the good grace of diving to make it look even better because he was at full strength and could get nowhere near it. And I loved the way he was so hyped up to Verney. He was really, really on it. And it was sort of great to see. And I liked the needle in this game. Uh, that that was real and unforced and kind of really gripping. And uh, uh, yeah, you know, good on Steve Cooper, who I always, it's always fascinating to watch him. Gary O'Neill. Gary O'Neill. I'm on Bournemouth. I'm on Bournemouth Fulham. <laughs> oh, no, there are lots uh, yeah. of problems, aren't there? Uh, sorry. Uh, all right, just forget everything I said. Rewind. Ask someone else. Okay. <laughs> okay, fine. Um, which goal were you thinking of? The the Pedence uh, goal or the... You know, because you were right about the goal. Listen, the camera last angle, night, last right. night, I was supposed <laughs> to be watching Match of the Day um, and Graham Potter gets sacked and I haven't been paying any attention to football. So Ben had to ring me up from the desk at 9.30 and ask me to write something on Graham Potter. Oh, so all, no. All of my record... I had Match of the Day on in the background with no sound while I was writing about Graham Potter. That's my only knowledge of all all these games. You were, your analysis of the goal was excellent and then you suddenly moved to Nottingham Forest Rules. It's all it a blur. I was literally <laughs> asleep and thinking about Graham Potter. And some people were scoring and looking pleased. Yeah. But actually, you make a good point about inadvertently possibly but how it does all the bottom of the table is sort of it's quite like that isn't it Wilson like it's very hard to know like just by now it's never this concertinaed and like those wins for Bournemouth and 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 West Ham then the next day it just you can't write but you can't write Southampton off now I'm going through all the teams as well it must be confusing to listen to I mean I'm quite tempted to be writing Southampton off uh, I mean you, you can't they're not obviously they're not down but I, I'd say they are and this is an absurdly banal thing to say, given that they are bottom of the table and have fewer points than everybody else. But I think they are the most likely team to go down. Okay. Yeah. And they've hired a ma- they hired a man who looks like a manager. <laughs> well, it's better than they did with the previous appointment, in fairness. Yeah, yeah. We need a guy who looks like a manager. This guy looks, he's got a coat. <laughs> I, did, I did a bit of work for Puma before Christmas and they, they, they sent me a load of, a load of kit. And some amazing right. trainers that have, but anyway... A part of part of, it was obviously just the end of line stuff we were getting rid of, but they sent me an enormous um, manager's coat. So this huge box arrives, <laughs> and it, it, it's got you know a couple of a couple of running shirts and and and, and the trainers in the bottom. But then this it's just a vast coat, like one of those big sort of padded Arsene Wenger style bench coats, uh, which I haven't since given to charity because I was never going to wear it. But I could I could have got a job because I could have worn that and looked like a manager. <laughs> Barry, who's going down? Southampton, Bournemouth, and Everton. Wow, Everton is an interesting shout, isn't it? And Bournemouth, I think, I keep feeling like Gary O'Neill, we almost got to an analysing that game after the goal. Um, he's actually done such a great job to keep them in this hunt. And I, I keep, like you, I'm still relegating them. But like, he made those two changes at half time, which changed that game, you know. And he deserves a lot of credit for them being, well, now where are they? They're, what, they're not in the relegation zone, are they? They're 16th. Yeah, I mean, there's, it doesn't really matter at the moment who's in the relegation zone. You know, we keep saying there's a quarter of the season to go. They're tightly concertinaed. 
he seems to be quite good at changing games sometimes, Gary O'Neill, and then other times not being very good at it at all. I mean, there are fans of Southampton, Everton and Bournemouth are going to be angry with me for saying they're going down. Why pick on us? But just be pleased because I'll almost certainly be wrong <laughs> and your team will stay up. Well, I just I don't see Everton finishing below Leeds. I think Leeds are in, I fearfully, I like Leeds. Uh, I miss Jesse Marsh, uh, but I think they might be in trouble. We haven't yet talked about Forest Wolves. You did get onto the needle in this game, Barney. Um, and we can now talk about the invisible the invisible saliva of Daniel Podence. The FA is looking into a spitting allegation against him. Uh, Brennan Johnson appeared to suggest that Podence spat at him. The video assistant referee, Neil Sorbick, did check the incident, uh, but didn't tell Chris Kavanagh to take action. I've seen it back, and I'm not going to add any fuel to the fire, said Steve Cooper. There's pictures and videos, so you have to trust the authorities to deal with it. I mean, the, the truth is, Barney, we couldn't we couldn't see any spit. We could we could see the we could, maybe it was a dummy. We don't know. Well, he'd been, he'd been running at that stage for over an hour, and what happened? What we're seeing there is a failure to gather mucus in the moment. That's what, what, let's be honest, that's what's happened. He's not been able to, if he'd given him just as, it was instinctive, it was very much in the moment, as um, as as Forrest quite magnanimously pointed out afterwards. If he'd had a second to gather him, so just to freeze the moment, like a finisher, like a goal scorer, you freeze the moment, he would have been able to gather mucus and he'd now be facing a three-match pass. It doesn't make any difference though. I mean, if you try to punch someone and miss, it's the same it's the same sanction in law and in football as successfully doing it. Failing to be able to spit properly is not an excuse. Like, I, you know, if I shoot at you and miss, it's still, uh, I've tried to murder you. I mean, that's never happened and it wouldn't happen. Well, it's 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 the difference between murder and attempted murder, isn't it? You, you get a lesser... There's no difference. But you get a lesser, no, you lesser don't. sentence no, you don't. for attempted murder. Failing to murder, you, you don't get a lesser sentence for being a bad murderer. Oh, this guy's a good murderer. Let's give him twenty years. This guy's a bad murderer. We give no. It's the same. But, but but you're you're not a murderer if you've if you've attempted and failed. No, it doesn't matter. It it, it doesn't matter. You still tried to do it. Just because you succeeded doesn't make it a worse offence. Wouldn't it be better have to have the bad murderers out on the street though, and in prison? I suppose the good so. Murderers? It's a sort of natural selection. Yeah, people. Four people. Luckily, four people tried to murder me today, but they're all bad murderers who've been not allowed not to go to jail. So I'm fine. <laughs> but no, I mean, no, Max, that makes no sense because if you've got somebody whose life's ambition is to commit a murder, like the the, the protagonist in the Hitchcock film Rope, for instance, you know, you don't want him. He can't be allowed to have like five or six goes to get it right. It's not like passing a driving test. <laughs> it's, the, it's the it's the ten thousand hours <laughs> principle. You can get good at it, isn't it? It's like players can improve. Eddie Howe can make them better. Like, that's what he can do. Like, you know, you just get the right manager in and you can go from being a bad murderer to a good murderer. How do we know if he can, if Daniel Pudence can ever produce mucus? We, he might be mucusless, mightn't he? He might he, be. He should have said, hold on a second. I want to spit at you, but I've been running around for a long time and it's quite hot. I'm just going to rush to the touchline, take a drink of water to, uh, you know, get some moisture and then come back. You, you can have a spittoon by the bench that they could gather mucus <laughs> in for you, you use at a later date. Well, someone else's mucus or they'd have one each. Have each player would have their own you, mucus you, pot. You can have team mucus It's a squad game these days. So, and then do you, do you, does then Daniel Penance just pour it over Brennan Johnson or does yeah. he drink, he drinks the spit of other Wolves players? I, I realise I'm moving into the area of Barry's expertise which perhaps is not where we've been for the rest of this conversation, but you get a super soaker. And but when I was when I was um, writing about the uh, England Argentina quarter final of the '66 World Cup, where there's a lot of allegations of spitting, I went through the whole tape of that game looking for spit. And obviously, it's right. impossible because it's grainy black and white footage. It's impossible to see, but you could see a lot of um, a lot of players sort of making a spit type gesture. A lot of players reacting as though saliva's landed on them, but you couldn't trace the spit. Uh, in fact, I think there was one where you, you could see a slight kind of lightness on the frame. And I think I think Nobby Siles was the 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 uh, receiver of a spit, the spit victim. Right. Um, the spitty. And I, I, I have to say, I thought those days were behind us. But then even with your super slow-mos and your you know, 50 frames a second or whatever it is, 
it still turns out to be very hard to, to, to see spittle if indeed there was any spittle. And it now turns out that spittle or no spittle, you can still be a spitter. Can I just um, accept that I went to law school almost 20 years ago and know nothing about this and there will be criminal lawyers listening to this going, this bloke is talking absolute rubbish. So I fully accept that and I apologise in advance. Not a problem. I enjoyed it and I, I accept everything you say as the truth and virtually nothing that Barry says is the truth. So like, I, I know which side of the fence that I'm on. Anyway, I feel like maybe this has come to a sort of natural conclusion, this podcast. Um, uh, there's Premier League on well tonight and tomorrow and Wednesday, so we'll cover it all and any stuff we missed uh, on Wednesday and Thursday's pod. But for the time being, uh, Barry, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Wilson. Cheers, thank you. Thank you, Barney. Cheers, bye. Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Danielle Steve. This is The Guardian.